to Innovating Humanity, the official podcast for Birmingham Tech. I'm Jude Jennison, the host of this podcast, and I'm the founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I work with senior leadership teams to help them align through behavioural change. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the intersection between technology, humanity and leadership and looking at how we use technology to be more human and increase emotional connection and enhance the way that we live and work. I'll be interviewing leaders from technology businesses who are at the forefront of changing how we live and work. You will not want to miss this. Some of the conversations have been enlightening and inspiring and I hope you enjoy them as much as I have done. Jane Fallon is Head of Digital for the Midlands for a consultancy firm called Methods that creates human-centred design for the public and private sectors. Jane talks about the need to start with understanding the needs of the user in order to create digital services that work for humans. Our use of digital is growing exponentially, so it's great to hear how leaders like Jane influence the future of our humanity and ensure it's not overlooked in digital design. Have a listen. Hi Jane, thanks for joining me today. Oh, pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, I am uh, Jane Fallon, and unfortunately, I'm not the famous one who's an author. Uh, I am uh, a a leader in digital and technology, uh, and I worked in the civil service, uh, working on developing uh, digital public services for a number of years. And now I work for a consultancy firm called Methods, uh, and I lead their Midlands team. And we look to apply human-centred design to the way that uh, digital services uh, coming from government uh, are designed and delivered uh, to, to people who need to use them. So tell me, tell me, that sounds really fascinating. Tell me a bit more about what is human, human-centred design? <laughs> so I think human-centred design, or it used to be called user-centred design, and you can use different, different terms, but it's about rather than starting with this is something technically we can do and this is the solution that we're going to have and then trying to work it around some requirements from the business or your customers you start with understanding what your users needs are uh, and then looking at how you can build a solution around that and you test it again and again and again to try and get it right Uh, and I would say so anyone who's worked in a very large organization will know most of the systems that we might have to use internally, like an HR system, will be quite dreadful to use. And you might hear words like user interface are are awful Uh, and they won't have been built with that human centered design approach. But to use a company people might have heard of someone like Deliveroo has really embedded that human centered design, you know, to little things like people want to anticipate when the food's going to come to their door and track it because they might have hungry children upstairs, you know, screaming when food's coming Mm -hmm. with the built in that you can track how it's coming to your door. So it it really looks about how you it's a digital service, but it's how you interact with it. And in the in the public sector realm, there was some really interesting pieces of work when we started introducing this early on, looking at things like um, when you had to register as a carer for carer's allowance and some of the questions that were included because they were considered interesting from a policy perspective, actually sparked people to almost break down in tears. So questions about when you last went on a holiday. Uh, If you're a carer, 
you never really have a holiday. Mm -hmm. So using those sorts of observational uh, design techniques to really improve a service. And usually those services will be around the sort of digital and technology space. And presumably with with government, I mean, with with anything, but especially with um, public sector, I imagine that you need to be able to do things in different languages. It needs to be accessible for everybody. Absolutely. So much more thought goes into than people might realise some of the sort of design techniques that we know work and can be reused and design patterns, even like asking someone for their date of birth in an unconfusing way, but you need to break it down to be accessible for all. You know, usually you'd say you would apply, try and apply a reading age of nine. So lots of people with lots of different expertise are trying to work on things behind the scenes. So we have what well, we not just a content editor, but we call them a content designer. Everyone really has a responsibility for accessibility. But at the same time, we will probably have some accessibility specialists working behind the scenes. And, and even though I've, I've been in government building these, then you come to the point where you're a user. And, and for example, I had an email from school when I was working on Monday saying there'd been a COVID case in the class and we needed to put them in for both in for a PCR. I've got twins who are 10. So whilst I'm in a meeting, I'm also on the phone trying to use the COVID test booking system. Mm -hmm. And I have twins who are 10 who are a boy and a girl. So the only difference is their first name. And yet there's about, I don't know, 30 fields that have to repeat twice. And I'm dying to get in touch with that team saying, if I could have, you know, copied and pasted, if you've got multiple children and just change their names and their dates of birth, for my two, I don't even need to change the date of birth. What a better system that would be, because it took me hours. So, so for everyone, it's accessibility needs and the pressure of people under, and also the emotional strain. You know, a lot of people have to interact with government when they've lost someone, uh, might be needing to cancel or letting DWP and HMRC and everyone know. They can often, some, some of the things are very transactional, pay my car tax, but actually quite a lot of them are quite emotional. So your users, that the humans who are using your services are doing so in quite an emotional state. And I think when you're designing them, that's where you need to observe users in the, in the, in the wild, if you possibly can, which has actually been quite difficult during COVID, mm -hmm. to understand everything that they're using. It's not enough for someone who is just making it to think, well, this is fairly easy to use because you're never going to have that same mindset as someone who's having to use it uh, for, for real. Well, no, and, and also I know from my own experience of working in, in IBM many years ago that I, I thought very differently from most of the technical people who were in the teams that I was leading. And, and in many ways, that was the, the strength that I brought because I, I brought a, a sense of creativity or a different way of looking at things. And I would ask questions that people would say, that's a stupid question. And then I'd say, well, well, what's the answer to it? And and so I think there's there is a danger, isn't there? That yeah. as we move more and more towards using technology, I mean it underpins quite frankly everything we do in life and, and in work. Um how how do we make sure that we're not always designing from a, a left brain logical analytical point of view? I think that's where we need to. So we use a technique called human centred design, which we have user researchers who 
gather information about our users to start and understanding their user needs. And I'm using the word need specifically because you, you, you mentioned you used to work for, for IBM. The term we would do is requirements. And if you ask someone, you get a requirement. If you observe them, you understand the need. And sometimes they're actually quite different, what someone might vocalize and what they need. And then again, you need to regularly test it. As I say, we work in cycles where we test things again and again with users. But you also have to approach, approach things with the humility that we don't know all the answers. And I think that's really important as well. I've also seen some really exciting and interesting things, taking things a stage further from just what we call user-centered design with, with lots of user research cycles again and again uh, to more co-design. Uh, and there's some really interesting work in that space as well that's happening. But, but, but it's really difficult for, for you to put yourself in someone's shoes. And sometimes people who work in the public sector have gone through something for themselves. Uh, you know, we're still humans, uh, and we're and we and we have to do things ourselves. But even then, we only know it from our perspective. So yeah. I think it's really important to go in with that humility. And the designer's job then is not to think how they want to design it. The designer's job is is much cleverer, and it's about understanding all of these different user needs from all of the different users and the government in the policy intent of the government, and then looking to design something, but then listening to feedback as you test it with users to understand how it can work better. There's also a growing community of people who are sharing best practice across government at a practitioner level, uh, particularly you know, designers and, and researchers and accessibility specialists. And that's brilliant because when we can understand some patterns that are probably most easy to use, uh, then we can at least have those, build those in as building blocks as a starting starting point. Mm. Gosh, I mean, so many, so many things that you've, you've covered there. I, I'm, I'm really struck by the word humility because it's not a, it's not a word that I hear. I hear it sometimes, but it's not a word I hear often in the context of um, technology and and how yeah. we design and use technology um and and one of the things i'm always really fascinated by is how technology the the designers often have a an idea for something and then that technology takes on a life of its own in the way that consumers use it or in the way that it evolves or in the way that other people might then adopt it and manipulate and use it not necessarily for, for you know, with, with good intent. But how, how do we protect ourselves from, from that? No, knowing that whatever we're designing now might fall into, um, into different hands that have different intentions. Yeah, so it's a really good point. So that's where you need to look at some of the other social sciences that can help. So alongside uh, the teams who work in that human-centered design, who might be designing everything with best intentions. And as you say, there might be unforeseen circumstances in how others might use that tool to a different aim. Then there are uh, a growing band of people who are uh, sort of what we call digital sociologists who look more in the, in the macro. 
So your human-centered design tends to focus on this particular service and how this particular group of, of, of users or different types of users interact and making that as smooth as possible. But then people need to look much more broadly. As I say, there's these growing sort of digital, almost anthropologists or sociologists who are looking much broader to understand, you know, well, this is how users might use it, but how might someone over here who's got nothing to do with it misuse this system? Mm-hmm. And, and, and we need to bring all of that into the table. So we, we have some really, when people think about leaders in digital and technology, you know, you'll pick the one or two who, uh, was it Bill Gates wanted a, a PC on everyone's desk and that was the vision and yeah. he got that, you know, and, and that was an incredible thing to do. And was that user-led or was that, you know, design-led? Uh, but at the same time, you can have a few of those really big ideas, but you do need some people who can question and who can feedback and who are that counterpoint. Yeah. And what you want to do is have them embedded in the teams. So, so again, we work in a way where we have what we call a multidisciplinary team. So you don't just have a design team over here who do some work and then throw it over to a development team who might do a little bit of user testing and then off it pops. It's a continual cycle with everyone in the round. But there, there is unfortunately always going to be unforeseen consequences. What we need to do is identify those and pick those up. And, uh, you know, people who own these systems then need to think about how can they do better in that space to make that less of an issue. Uh, And and I think we've seen in some of the big players in social media, some of them have been better than others Mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with those consequences. Uh, And it's about, are they trying to still meet the original user need or are they just seeing their product as as a way of making a, you know, a bucket load of money? And uh, I think that very much influences what they do to uh, make their product work differently to hopefully stop some of those unexpected consequences. I think that's so important, isn't it? Because as you as you say, if we're only focused on revenue and profit and we're not focused on purpose and the impact on society, um, then there is a risk that we develop yeah. all manner of things that don't meet user needs um, and, and largely often don't work, work for women. Um, Absolutely. Because tech is still a male dominated industry and we're we are two women who've worked in in tech I um, when I worked in tech I didn't have any technical skills so I was leading technical teams to do amazing things but I was I was the leadership I was the innovation I was the how do we look at things in a different way what's what's your experience of of that and how do we I know there are all sorts of things to get more women into tech but how how do we how do we shape the face of technology I mean every business is a technology business now so how, how do we shape the way that we live and work in a way that works for women as much as it works for men so so I think Gosh, there's, there's lots of things here that we can unpack. So first of all, in terms of, and again, it was interesting because I know that you've been involved with Birmingham Tech Week. And, and I always like to use the phrase digital rather than tech because digital really is, is sometimes used as a short term for modern ways of using technology. And they're produced by modern teams and organizations that have a range of people in them whereas technology is often just seen as the developers and programmers Mm -hmm. so 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 i prefer the word digital because of 
of what it says. And actually, if you have a team, uh, as I said, some of these multidisciplinary teams with user researchers and uh, interaction designers and people looking at design and if it's big enough, you know, a digital uh, anthropologist, uh, as well as the people who are going to develop the code, all working consistently together, then I think you will get a better and a more diverse range of people into those teams, including women. So mm. I think that's the first part. I think uh, quite often it's just sort of focused on the technology and there's a certain type of brain maybe that might be attracted to that job. Uh, and therefore, you're not probably going to get as diverse a group. They're brilliant at what they do. But I think you need things in the round. I've also worked and led teams uh, without being a, a technologist myself. Uh, I think I know enough to mm. be able to listen sensibly uh, mm. and to ask the right questions. But also, I constantly ask the idiot questions. And actually, those idiot questions are the ones that maybe help us get a little bit better mm. because you've got to understand the purpose. People can get very excited with the art of the possible and not the art of fulfilling a need. Yeah. And I think we need to be really careful to do that. I've seen far too many, and you might have heard the phrase, backlogs of work, which are all just things that could be really interesting to do. But are they actually of need? Are they of value? And I work in the public sector. And uh, someone did a tweet recently about, about waste. And they said, if you've worked in the public sector, if you have to bring in your own tea bags to work, it gives you a certain perspective on waste. And that's very true. Mm. Uh, I now work with the public sector, but from a consultancy point of view, you know, just doing things for the fun of it might be great to do some bits of innovation here and there. But ultimately, we need to have a fully rounded team of people working on things. And we're starting to see that happen more and more. The, the, the other thing I would say as a, as a woman and as a mum and as a single mum is there's still, I think, uh, although people are working remotely, uh, much more of a sort of not presenteeism, but it's very much it's a full time job. So I think there's lots that can be done uh, around trying to encourage flexible working. And I think actually that's been one of the benefits, dare I say, it, of COVID. So I work and have worked for ages in, in agile teams that generally use what's called a scrum methodology mm -hmm. and you work in two week sprints and you'll have a daily stand up and you have uh you know regular meetings on regular days and scrum is brilliant in many ways but if you want to work part-time or do different hours it, it actually can can hold you back from that so i think we need to think about the workplace. The other thing is bro culture. And, and again, that's a cliche to use that term, mm. but just making sure that when you have this broader team of all of these different disciplines coming together, people who understand, really understand content, you know, the way that you write things can really make or break a digital product. Your user researchers and your designers are just as important as your technology people. And they need to, you need to find ways and mechanisms to bring people together and talk about how they work as a team and recognizing the value of all of those skills. I've seen an interesting change in the market in the last two or three years. So it used to be that the best paid jobs were always on the technology side and the and the developers. Uh, and so the other members of the team might be paid a little bit less. And there is something about status and how people are viewed in a team. But in, at the moment, if you've got some of those 
human-centered design skills, you are in such hot demand at the moment, and you can probably command more than you can uh, than sometimes than someone on the development technology side. So the balance has really shifted. So that's quite interesting to see as well. Mm. Uh, not just saying that you know all of the people on the design side are, are women, but it just a- allows you to have a more diverse range of brains, as you say, left and right, uh, and others who are all part of a team. Uh, working together so it's about making sure we've got that broadness of team because ultimately I think it delivers a better product in the end Uh, and then making sure all of that team is is valued in the right way and we and we stamp out any you know sometimes people who are very uh, technical can can look down on some of the other disciplines and professions that we have making sure they're all really valued where that happens it's brilliant and I think that needs to be demonstrated from the top and then we just need to look at some some flexibility in the workplace I think because it can be really hard uh, for people who are trying to balance uh, a a lot of different competing needs and and working on some of these things is really absorbing Uh, I think someone uh, circulated a job advert from you know a big uh, innovative tech firm basically saying you've got to be there you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, blah, 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 uh, very much doing this sort of competitive drive culture. Mm. Well, you know, you're not going to have a balance of team there. You're going to have someone who is probably uh, younger or doesn't have kids. You're not going to have a balance of team. And and is that actually going to make your products better for your user base? Only if you're developing products for, for for the same group as you're trying to get in your organization. I just I just don't think that works in practice. And and what I'm what I'm hearing you talk about is the need for for us to create a workplace that works for teams to be able to collaborate and to have the skills to collaborate because it's one thing having the tech, you know, we've all we've all got the tech that allows us to collaborate, but actually it's the the human skills, the personal skills, the leadership skills that enable us to collaborate effectively. Otherwise, we're all just agreeing with one person or one particular thought process. So it's about the the, the skills as well as the workplace that enables us to collaborate. Um, yeah. How how do um, what's my question here? What what are what other leadership skills do you think that we need to um, develop in order to make sure that we build those inclusive and collaborative teams? So kindness, I think, um, as someone as a as a woman who's I'm forty eight now. So when did I start work? Twenty four. Uh, um, kindness and uh, humility in terms of not necessarily having all the answers uh, and that servant leadership model. I think really, really works uh, for, for the benefit of, well, any team, but particularly in digital and technology. So I see my role as supporting and enabling that team and supporting and enabling individuals rather than trying to print on my way of doing things. Uh, hopefully, because I'm a bit older, I might have seen a few things and, and I might be able to make some suggestions uh, relevant from my experience where things might be really broken. But my job is really to lift that team up, uh, not to, to, to just try and point them in, in a direction. I think you need to point them in a direction of, uh, 
you know, let's all agree that this is the vision that we're working to. This is the problem that we want to solve, be it a, a public sector government uh, problem or a, you know, a private sector. We think that this would be really great for customers in the future. And your job as a leader is to, 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 to make that enticing and get and, and make everyone understand that's where you want to do. But then your role is to then lift up that team uh help them work together as a team again a conversation i had re uh, recently was about the value of uh, a thing that we often use in agile called a, a retrospective so so often all of our discussions are in, in work are about the thing we're working on uh and not about how we work together mm -hmm. um so whether you call it a retrospective or, or whether you want to call it something else but you as a leader helping your team have time to feel comfortable enough to step away from delivery and focusing on the thing to focusing on themselves and how they work together as a team, I think is, is just so important. Mm. And sometimes as a leader, you need to stand up on behalf of your team and say to maybe someone higher up the chain, this can't go on or this has to change. Uh, again, sometimes you have to put yourself on the line. So it's, it's, it's kind of a balancing act in between to try and create that safe space creating a safe space so people can open up if they're having some issues with how the team is working so you can talk pragmatically about how how things could be done differently not just in terms of the work outcome but the working relationships and the way we work uh, I just think is absolutely vital and you need to be able to be vulnerable and talk about how your it's about feelings isn't it you need to be able to say what your feelings are to create a space, a safe space for others to be able to talk about their feelings and not just turning up or, you know, almost like a machine doing whatever job it is that they're meant to do from nine to five or nine to six and then go home. So I think it's about creating the right culture, creating the right uh, atmosphere and the right spaces in the working week and the working day so that people can take that step back and look at how they work together. And it's about, it's, you know, what you're speaking to is about being a well-rounded human being, isn't it? Because, it is. Because it we, is. we need to be able to think logically and pragmatically. And we are also emotional beings. So we need to we need an outlet to outlet to be able to express those those feelings and to be curious about each other. I mean, you know, I always say that the argument about who put the bins out is never about the bins. It's about a, a level of frustration that builds and builds and builds. It and builds because we don't have those outlets to say, actually, let's sit down and look at who's doing the majority of the household chores or, you know, or in the workplace. It's like, let, let's sit down and, and agree how we work together in a way that works for, for everyone. I, um, I interviewed uh, Phil Elston from Brompton uh, Cycles recently, and he he every week has one hour that he calls rum and coke that is um, an hour for his team to talk about how are we doing as a team and are we getting on with each other and what can we do differently and um, he said it was transformative in yeah. building trust and building relationships and that has enabled them as a result to be much more innovative in their design thinking so you know, I think what, what you're speaking to is something that is often overlooked, particularly when we think about digital or, or tech businesses, that we tend to think about them as very smart people who are 
very technologically minded, often very logical, left brained, um, and that they're they're suppressing emotions. Like how how do we how do we encourage people to be more well rounded human beings in the workplace? I know that's a big question. <laughs> it, 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 it is a big question, and if someone doesn't feel comfortable talking about emotions, then you know we're never going to force it. I think it's just creating that safe space safe space so that they know that they can mm -hmm. and also modeling it you know probably if you ask some of my team I maybe overshare what's going on in my life you know I have a very busy life outside of work with parents and you know supporting my mum who's on her own and a lot of other things and I, I can't help but just be honest and me and authentic and I'm quite often a mess and if my camera's not on it's possibly because I'm still in my pajamas because I've been sorting the kids and getting them out the door but I just think you have to be raw and honest about who you are but then also show how you can bring value and insight into the workplace so I think the most we can do is create a safe space for people so when they're ready they feel really really comfortable and sometimes that might be in a group. So the rum and coke, or we might find, call it a retrospective. For some people, you know, saying that in front of a, a room full of people or a, a Zoom meeting full of people is, is possibly the worst thing in the world. So it's also knowing that in the right way, at the right time, they can have a one-to-one -one conversation. Mm. Uh, but it's okay, you know, that, that these things are okay to, to be able to voice. And ultimately, we're trying to make the, the team a happier place uh, for, for, for them as individuals and ultimately it benefits whatever you're trying to work on you know if you've got a toxic environment in a team uh, it does show always shows you, you can never you can never produce something I don't think that's really really good uh, when you've had um, toxicity in a sort of team working environment it just doesn't work in practice so that's why I think it's really important for those at the very top to make sure that they give their teams and their people time to get really good working teams together because ultimately they'll have a happier workforce and and get the outcomes that they're looking for. Jane thank you so much for your time it's been fantastic talking to you today thank you. Oh, my pleasure thank you. The role of technology is changing as digital is a fundamental part of everything we do in life and work. I love Jane's idea that bringing together technology, anthropology and sociology enables us to understand what it is to be a human being in a digital world and what the tech needs to do to enhance our humanity. Jane also recognises the critical need to treat employees with the same importance as the customers and use emotions to engage and inspire those employees to do their best work. Who in your team needs re-engaging and re-inspiring? That's it for this week. You've been listening to Innovating Humanity, the official podcast for Birmingham Tech Week. I'm Jude Jennison, host of the podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I hope you've been as inspired by this week's guest as I have. If you'd like to know more about how I help leaders and teams be more human in a world of technology, you may be surprised to discover I do it by working in a field with a herd of horses. Sound crazy? All innovation's crazy in the beginning. So if you like to think outside of the box and get rapid results, you can find out more at www.judejennison.com. And if you'd like to find out more about the exciting technology scene in Birmingham, hop onto the Birmingham Tech website at www.birminghamtechweek.com. 
Until next time, that's it from me, Jude Jennison, the official podcast partner for Birmingham Tech. <laughs>